3: for tuning in, and welcome to IMRU Radio Magazine, out front and out loud since 1974, striving each week to amplify the voices of the LGBTQIA2S communities. I'm David Hunt in Raleigh, North Carolina. In the aftermath of a spate of SCOTUS rulings, building on a logic that may endanger the future of same-sex marriage, we revisit an interview with Roberta Kaplan. Who actually argued a marriage equality case before the Supremes? No, the other ones. We look at a pioneering trans film, which has its 20th anniversary screening this week at OutFest in Los Angeles. But first, we note the passing of Robert Mayner, who died this month at 83. He owned and ran Robert's Lafitte, the oldest gay bar in Galveston, Texas. He was also a past IMRU guest, after being profiled in PJ Raval's documentary Before You Know It.
4: subject of aging, George Carlin once said, we become 21, turn 30, push 40, reach 50, and make it to 60. While the subjects of P.J. Reval's documentary, Before You Know It, Dennis, Ty, and Robert are well past that milestone and live life to its fullest each and every day.
0: Hi, my name is P.J. Reval, and I'm the director of the feature documentary, Before You Know It, a portrait of three gay senior men. It's a film that is about aging and it's a look at community and how, in my opinion, that aging is a community effort.
5: My name is Ty Martin and I'm 65 years old. I live in Harlem, New York. I work at um, SAGE, which is Services and Advocacy for Gay Elders. When did you know you were gay? Early 20s, right after my dad died. I had a sense of, okay, I can finally be who I want to be now. That was back in 1965, actually. So I was like 20 years old. I'd just gotten out of the Navy, which I definitely couldn't be gay there. And it was quite challenging before Stonewall. I can remember as a younger person going to house parties in Harlem with the fear that the uh, police could come in and just simply raid the place we couldn't just be ourselves. It was not something that you flaunted. I can remember being afraid to cross my legs, (laughs) you know, and now it's something I don't think about doing. Up in Harlem, we had stand-up bars like the Big Apple and Andre's, so we would gather at after 8 o'clock and um, have cocktails and that would go on until the bars closed at 4 and then we'd go to work and it was that same after hour meeting spots and it was all over the city back then. Times Square was a great place to meet and there was not a lot of concerns about what was going on on that level particularly like what was happening in the village. Uh, We were being harassed but it wasn't like or oh, I can't take it kind of stuff, you kind of adjust it to, well, this is what life is, being gay back in the 60s. So I didn't really notice a change until we stopped having the stand-up bars and we started going to clubs.
6: My name is Dennis Creamer. I live in Gresham outside of Portland, and I'm 80 years old. I reside at Rainbow Vista in Gresham. It's a gay retirement home. Uh, Right now, we have about 13 people. We have one couple, one lady, and the rest are all single guys. There's one person older than myself, but uh, most are are what I call young people, which is anybody under 70.
4: (laughs) Well, you were married for a number of years. I was
6: married about 30 years. My wife passed away.
4: Did you know you were gay early on, or is this something that happened after your wife passed?
6: I might have had the inclination all along. I never acted on it, though, until uh, she was gone. Then uh, I happened to go on a total tours uh, group to uh, Hawaii, and it was uh, just myself and one older guy, and the rest were young guys, you know. So they tended to gravitate together, and uh, by default I ended up uh, with the uh, older guy, and he was a a lawyer from New York. And we ended up traveling together after that on many occasions. He just got so bossy, though, that I (laughs) I couldn't put up with it anymore.
4: One of the things you say in the film that really hit me hard, you said that you had a very ordinary life, that you didn't really impact anybody or anything, but that's no longer true. This film is out, and it's going to impact a lot of people. Do you believe that? Uh,
6: I don't know. I had goals for myself, and I never accomplished those goals, so I feel in a sense that my life was sort of wasted.
4: When you look around and see the accomplishments of the last, like, 10 years in the LGBT community with uh, Don't Ask, Don't Tell dropping away, now you can, like, marry your sailor boyfriend on base. What do you feel about all that? It's
6: almost inconceivable to me. It's so far out that if someone had told me this 20 years ago, I'd say they were out of their minds. When I was in the military, for instance, if you were thought to be gay, you could end up beaten up before you were thrown out. And now to see it accepted, it's it's amazing to me.
4: Are you glad you did the film?
6: Uh, Yes, I am, and uh, I appreciate the opportunity to be in it. It's something that I feel will live on after my uh, demise. <laughs> but uh, seeing myself on the film, I said, "Gosh, is, is that? Am I really like that? Is this the way I, I look and act?" And it was a surprise to me because my self-image is that of a much younger person, and I see this guy that, gosh, he must be eighty. <laughs> And that isn't my self-image. Every time I look in the mirror, I said, there's, there's been some terrible mistake that can't be me," because I don't feel old. I, I really don't feel old.
2: My name is Robert. I live in Galveston, Texas, and I'm 75. They call me Robert the Mouth because I've always got an opinion about something. I believe in everything being positive. If you're positive, every time you get up in the morning, then you go out, and I terrorize everybody. Tell
4: me about running a gay bar in Galveston, Texas.
2: Well, I've had the bar since 1969. I lived in Hollywood for a while, and we had a bar here, me and Bernard. And What was that? That was the fireside. It was over on La Cienega and Venice Boulevard. And uh, after we sold it, my father had cancer, so Bernard had lost all of his family. And so he insisted that I move back close to their family, because once they're gone, they're gone. My father and my mother all have uh, passed away. When I was young, they knew I was gay, but you don't talk about it. So you go and do your own thing, but you be very quiet about it, and don't mention it, and you don't bring it up. They didn't want to hear it. And uh, when we were young, we had to fight everybody. They always wanted to beat up the queers. So you had to stand up for yourself. If you didn't, you were gonna go down the drain. Are you happy? I think most of it we get lonely after we get a little older but we have our sad moments you sit there and then think about your lovers and all your friends that already passed away and I'm still here so I gotta keep going and every day is a new day before you know it you're already there you're older and before you know it
0: mm-hmm. I think a lot of audiences are watching the film and suddenly realizing how much they have in common.
4: Filmmaker PJ Raval.
0: With Dennis Tye and Robert. Because aging happens to everyone. The aging process doesn't discriminate. Everyone gets older. And I think society in general likes to de-sexualize seniors across the board, right? People when they hit a certain age are not supposed to have some kind of sexual identity anymore. And I think when you say you're a gay senior, you're defining yourself by your sexual identity. So I think the two terms are almost at odds with each other. It's a really interesting tension there because the general public doesn't assume any sexual identity for seniors. And I keep thinking about, well, I'm very aware of my sexual identity. I'm very aware of how that's part of my identity. So I can't imagine that going away ever, even when I'm 80. That's part of the reason why I wanted to look at it. But then when I did start doing research, I started uncovering that gay seniors are twice as likely to live alone, for instance, four times less likely to access social services. And I think they are the most extreme examples of ageism, discrimination that happens. Society in general is youth obsessed, and there's definitely a power to youth. And I think the gay male community, it's even more so. Because there's so much value placed, not only in terms of youth, but physical beauty and just your physical being. I think a lot of that is what I was interested in, in looking at.
4: This has been a conversation with filmmaker P.J. Raval, as well as Dennis, Ty, and Robert, from his documentary, Before You Know It. Find more information about the film online at beforeyouknowitfilm.com. I'm Steve Pride. Thanks for listening.
3: Before you know, it can be screened on the Tubi app or rented on YouTube, Google Play, or Voodoo. 20 years ago, it was slim Pickens for genderqueer films. That is, until the arrival of a buddy film about three weeks in the life of a handsome, gender-bending, small-town butch. It was called By Hook or By Crook.
7: Gwyneth, Julia, and Nicole stand aside. At this week's Sundance Film Festival, there's a new girl in town. But are the latte-sipping denizens of Park City, Utah ready for a leading lady who dresses like James Dean and looks like the male love child of Kyle McLaughlin and Ricky Nelson? They had better be.
8: I'm a Silas Howard co-director, co-writer, and co-star by Hooker by Crook. This is a queer buddy movie. The two main characters are definitely very gender fluid, but that's not necessarily the point of the story. It's a lot about one person's opportunity to get to be a hero in their life. It's a lot influenced by a movie like Midnight Cowboy. Basically, this one character is losing her home. She's lost her dad. She's lived in extreme poverty, and she leaves her small town and decides that she's in a nihilistic place and is going to do all these crimes. And she ends up saving this character from a fight, who also kind of looks like a little man, like herself. And they end up hanging out together and doing these small crimes. And uh, Shy, my character, and Valentine, the Character that she rescues from the fight, Valentine's on a search for her birth mother, and so um, Shy ends up learning kind of a way to find a way home through knowing Valentine, who's very eccentric and sort of like an idiot savant, but is very open in the world and open-hearted, and it really helps Shy, who's in this shut-down place, to find a way back to caring uh, about herself and about somebody else. Tell me one thing about your parents. My parents were opera aficionados. They met at the opera. Traviata. Yeah. I heard of that one. My dad was a ballroom dancer, an all-around artesian. What's an artesian? It's an artist, but you live in the middle of nowhere and you make plaques out of pine cones and macaroni. We worked on the script for quite some time before shooting it. It's shot on digital video. It's shot on PAL, which is a European format, which has a nicer resolution. And it's a closer frame rate to film. Harriet Dodge and I, my co-director, We both love film and love the look of film and love movies like Wong Kar Wai's films. Just beautiful, beautiful color and mood and feel. And we wanted to shoot it on film and of course, you know, the fundraising process was really difficult and so a bunch of people had suggested to shoot on digital and we were first completely depressed at the thought. Because video, you know, it's going to look like video. And so we really worked hard and our crew and our DP, and Rossetti, who shot Go Fish and a bunch of other movies, really, really worked hard to get the lighting right and to sort of like get as much of the beauty in every shot as we could. And we, we also lived in San Francisco for 15 years and loved that city. And so a lot of our locations and stuff, I think really helped to the look of the city and that there's a lot of love, even in just scouting the locations that we got. There were too many locations. If you ask any of our crew, <laughs> we had like 50 locations. It was a lot of course, cause every time you move and it just takes a lot of time, even if it's a shorter setup time with video. So yeah.
7: Queer film has exploded. But images of butch lesbians are still very rare.
8: That was why we originally started to do this film, is that there was all this great progress made with lesbian and gay film, and it's just like an ever-growing and, and a really exciting time to, to watch it evolve. We started this project right around the time that Boys Don't Cry was started, and I had actually auditioned for, well, as, as many, many butch across the country auditioned for this role when it was a small budget film but we just really wanted to show that type I think for some reason it kept being a really terrifying thing to show in film and I think there's a a gay stream you know that sort of gains an amount of clout and is very comfortable and I think people get afraid of like not looking good in a certain way and so I think that there's you know a lot of like a butch look or sort of transgendered look, although we identify kind of in between the two, isn't really a a passing look, you know, and yet it's an ever-growing, and I think the youth, I think the kids are really grabbing onto that identity, and it's been around forever, and it will be. I think it's important just because it's yet another face put on the screen, and the camera's gaze is such a big deal in this society as a way for, like, anybody to see themselves up there is a phenomenal thing to experience. For me, I looked for it and found it in little bits of movies like Times Square. or, like, set it off, you know, Queen Latifah's character and, like, all these, like, and I'm like, oh, yeah, it's exciting. I think it is. I don't know why there isn't more of it.
7: By Hook or By Crook spent 2001 on the gay film festival circuit and won top honors at both the Seattle Gay and Lesbian Film Festival and L.A.'s Outfest win or lose at Sundance. According to Silas Howard, it's the audience that counts. And their reaction has been...
8: Pretty amazing response, actually. Better than I had hoped. I wasn't sure, I mean, I've been in a band, a punk queer band called Tribate for like 10 years. And when we started, our first tour was supported by young punk rock kids and they were amazing and they like supported us. And then over the years, more and more dykes and lesbians and gay men came to check out the band because it was irreverent and funny and sort of entertaining to watch but it was a slow build and so I thought that might happen with our film and I had really I had preconceptions and people have like we all think each other's so different if we look different and people were moved by the film they related to it that was great because that was really our intention
7: on the subject of tribe 8
8: tribe 8 is this uh, pretty obnoxious irreverent punk band and it started like 10 years ago and we have toured all over Europe and, and the US extensively it's a lot about in humor about you know our own culture and then sort of like really dramatic theatrical uh, response to we had a song called frat pig about that sort of frat boy ritual of of raping women and it was like a theatrical thing where our singer cut off a rubber phallus and it was quite got a lot of press but um, we've done uh, just an underground music scene but we've also been you know got a pick of twelve bands in Rolling Stone and a lot of national coverage The name is like a spoof on an old definition, like a 17th century definition of lesbianism, which is tribating. Like, if you hump against a pole, you're tribating, And that's how they described lesbian sex. And so we just thought, that's so ridiculous. Great, let's call our band that. But it's spelled T-R-I-B-E, number eight in the dictionary spelled different.
7: And what does Silas Howard want her audiences to take away from the film, by hook or by crook?
8: To at first like look at these characters and maybe they think, oh, this is different, or, or this is me, or this isn't me. And by the end, just be caught up in the story of two humans' lives, a little moment in their lives, and feel something about it. I guess it's that simple.
7: I asked the screenwriter, director, producer, film fatale, songwriter, and rock star what's next.
8: Whatever opportunities present themselves, you know, we'll have to see how it goes. I mean, I'd love to act. I still don't know that there's that many roles for someone that looks like me in terms of playing a character that's female, doesn't really quite fit, or male, so we'll have to see how that goes. But I'd love to direct another film, definitely. I think there is a gay sensibility and a queer sensibility. I really like the queer sensibility, I have to say, and it tends to be I don't know, a little more outsider perspective, which in art is like a fabulous thing, which in the financial world is a terrible thing. But, you know, you really find like a lot of queers were at the beginning of punk music or experimental film or, you know what I mean? I think it's it's a big part of art, it's development. Not to say like a mouthful there, but I did.
7: <laughs> this has been a visit with a multi-talented Silas Howard. Her movie is By Hook or By Crook. Her band is called Tribe Eight. I'm Steve Pride, thanks for listening.
2: Means boy and
8: means girl. the same're all this world. The same hair, sex, who's gonna
3: If you can't make it to LA for an outfest screening, by hook or by crook can be rented on Amazon Prime. Don't go away. we'll be right back with Robbie Kaplan after this quick break. Welcome back. I'm David Hunt, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. Roberta Kaplan successfully argued before the Supreme Court of the United States on behalf of LGBT rights activist Edith Windsor in United States v. Windsor, a landmark decision that invalidated a section of the 1996 Defense of Marriage Act and required the federal government
9: to recognize same-sex marriages. Welcome, Roberta Kaplan. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. When you think back to U.S. v. Windsor and your work on that. What's the first thing that
1: pops to your mind?
9: Joy. Why?
1: Because what we accomplished both in the Windsor case and as a result of the Windsor case is something that would have been completely inconceivable to me. It would have been a fantasy to me, not only when I was a kid growing up or when I was a college student or a law student, but even as a young lawyer. The idea back in 1991 that gay people would be equal under the law to everyone else and marriage and essentially everything else is something that I, I never thought would happen in my lifetime.
9: One of the things I really love about the book is that it is also your coming out journey and it very much ties to this here you were 1991 you actually saw as a therapist and you talk about this in the book Thea Spire who is the late partner of the plaintiff in the case and you were dealing with coming out issues and Would you talk about that a little bit? Yeah,
1: look, I mean, I think, first of all, this is probably, it's not probably, it is the most rapid civil rights achievement that this country has ever experienced. No group in American history, no minority group, has had the kind of success that LGBT people have as quickly as we have in the last several years. That's a great thing. And it's great today that it's the new normal. And no one really bats an eye about people being gay or people being in relationships or people being gay and married. But because of that, I think it's easy to forget the fact that that very much was not true only several years ago. And I don't, again, you don't have to go back to 1991, you can go back to 2004. So I thought it was important to, to try to explain. This incredibly dramatic change, I think you needed to explain where we came from and how much the world has changed.
9: And I think a lot of people will relate to your own journey. It is very much a universal journey for a lot of us in this community. Could you give me a brief overview of the facts of the case?
1: Sure. So my client, Edie Windsor, who's 86 and doing great, I'm going to tell you her life story because that really is the facts of the case. She grew up in Philadelphia during the Depression. Her family lost their home and their business during the Depression. She went to college at Temple University, and even though she says she fell in love with a woman in college and she realized she was a lesbian, the idea back then, this was the 50s, that you could ever have a life with another woman, putting aside Patricia Highsmith novels and the movie Carol, the idea that that could ever happen was inconceivable to her. So she had been engaged to a guy. She broke off the engagement in college because of this woman. She then, after college, got re-engaged to the guy. That's how she gets the name Windsor. She was married. Needless to say, the marriage did not last very long. She basically said to her husband, she basically came out to him and said, you deserve to be loved the way you deserve to be loved. Mm -hmm. And I need something else. And like so many people, myself included, a few decades later, she moved to New York City in order to be gay. Now, interestingly, the biggest issue for Edie upon moving to New York City was not being gay. Because anyone who was middle class or up and gay at that point in time had to be completely closeted. You could not live your life otherwise. If you were going to be out, you really were putting yourself at the margins of society. And that's not what most people did. So the bigger problem she had was being a woman because it had always occurred to her or she'd always assumed that she'd get married and that her husband would support her. That's what women did back then. And now she needed to get a job. So she had been good, apparently, at algebra in high school, so she decided to enter the mathematics graduate program at NYU. She became one of the earliest software programmers in the country. She got a job to work her way through grad school working on what was then the biggest computer in the world called the UNIVAC computer, which was operated by the Atomic Energy Commission. In order to keep that job, she needed, and no pun intended here, but she needed Q security clearance. <laughs> One day, she got a letter from the FBI saying, we don't think you need a lawyer yet, but we'd like to talk to you. She was petrified, and she was right to be petrified, because back then, it was a felony. It was a crime for anyone who was gay or lesbian to have any employment with the federal government whatsoever. And you back could, then, we're talking the 50s. This is the late 50s, and, and you couldn't McCarthy, even work yeah. for a company that had contracts with the government like IBM, as Edie later did, that was also illegal. So she did a little research under New York law, turned out she was right, and that back then, according to her research, for a lesbian as opposed to a gay man, and the law was different, for a lesbian, what was illegal was to dress as a man. So Edie shows up at her FBI interview in high heels, a uh, frilly dress and crinolines. Hope- I just
9: have to interrupt and say, Edie is to this day a very stylish family. She
1: is. It's not hard to imagine Edie <laughs> in that outfit. I, I completely agree with that. Uh, hoping, as she said, to throw the FBI off their game. Fortunately for Edie, and fortunately I would say for the rest of this country, and for U.S. history, the FBI only really cared about whether her sister had friends who were in the teachers union and who were communists, and they never asked her whether she was a lesbian. But imagine that today, I mean, especially for people younger than me, the idea that you could be called in, asked whether you were gay, knowing that if you told the truth and Edie was determined to tell the truth, that that would not only be the end of your job, but the end of your career. Yeah, It's almost inconceivable today. So time went on. She got a job at IBM, as I mentioned. She did extremely well there. She had a fellowship at Harvard and then came back to New York. Upon coming back to New York, one night she called a friend. She was living on the Upper West Side. And she said she was the only person in her building who ever wore jeans. She decided to call a friend and said, kind of desperate, saying, I'm so lonely. I don't know any lesbians. Can you please take me where the lesbians go? And her friend took her to a restaurant in the village, then operated by Elaine Kaufman, who went on to start Elaine's, which on Friday nights, apparently lesbians went to. And at the restaurant, some friends brought over a woman by the name of Thea Spire to her table. As far as Edie was concerned, it was love at first sight. Not the same for Thea. Thea had a series of girlfriends over the next two years, and Edie kept kind of waiting. She finally heard the news that Thea was single and was going out to the Hamptons for a weekend. And so she begged some people who really weren't even friends. They were acquaintances. She called them up and said, would you mind if I come and stay at your your house for the weekend? <laughs> they agreed. Thea ended up showing late, and Edie was incredibly frustrated. It's
9: proof that lesbian drama has always been exactly with us. Exactly the yeah.
1: right, Exactly right. And that was the beginning. And then they went on to spend the next 40 years of their lives together. A couple years after that, Thea pulled over by the side of the road and pulled out a circular diamond pin and said to Edie, this was 1967, will you marry me? The reason she had a pin instead of a ring is because Edie had said to her, I can't show up with a diamond ring at work because everyone will want to know who's the lucky guy, and I can't answer that question. To me, the idea that two women in 1967 we're thinking this way. Could even have the thought enter their heads that they could get engaged is a fact that I never... It's amazing. I mean, Stonewall happened two years later. And then the truly heroic part of their lives is what happened for the next 40 years because Thea was diagnosed with a really terrible form of multiple sclerosis. And over time, she lost the use of her legs and then her arms. And by the end time she died, she was quadriplegic. Edie has said that that diagnosis happened to both of them. They had a refrigerator magnet that said, Seize Joy... And they really tried to live that. And the day that Thea died, she actually had patients she was supposed to see. So they really made sure as little in their life changed as possible. And then they couldn't get married. They wanted to get married. And Edie had said to Thea, let's go to Canada. They couldn't get married in New York. That's my fault because I lost the New York marriage case. (laughs)
9: Sorry about that. Yeah, I think I kind of
1: paid them back. You handled that case admirably. And so one day, Thea got a very bad diagnosis from the doctors that said that she didn't really have much more time to live. And even though in the past, she'd been reluctant to travel because if you're paralyzed, traveling is really, really hard. She woke up the next morning and she said to Edie, do you still want to get married? Edie said, I do. And they went to Toronto with four best women and two best men, someone who could disassemble and reassemble the wheelchair. They got married at the Toronto Airport Hilton so they could wheel the wheelchair directly to the room. Sadly, a couple years later, Thea passed away. And that's how the case really started. That was a very long preamble. I'm sorry. Uh, But it's
9: a great story. I don't get tired of it.
1: That's how the case really started because upon Thea's death, Edie realized that she had to pay essentially a tax on being gay. That all the property that they had accumulated over their many years together, it was as if Edie had inherited it from a stranger. So she got this whopping $350,000 estate tax bill. She paid it. You have to do that if you want to fight it. So she paid the bill. And then she went looking for a lawyer. And that's how the case started.
9: This is Abby Dees, and I'm talking with Roberta Kaplan, attorney and author of the book Then Comes Marriage, about her fight against DOMA. Really, the crux of the case was at least Section 3 of DOMA, said that the federal government would not recognize these relationships as a matter of course. And there was nothing that she could do.
1: DOMA is an extraordinary law in a lot of ways, or was an extraordinary law in a lot of ways. You know, it was passed in 1996 at a time when there really, I mean, no gay couples were getting married anywhere. (laughs) There was some kind of faint hint of it maybe happening in Hawaii, but It really wasn't a realistic prospect anywhere. And so Congress passed a law that says, even though there's no chance of gay couples getting married and there's no realistic prospect of it happening anytime soon, we're going to pass a law so that if it ever does happen, those marriages are invalid. It's an extraordinary statute. I mean, it had no impact when it was passed.
9: No, it was a complete, we're just, you know, locking the doors just in case.
1: Exactly. We just want to treat gay people as different just because they're gay.
9: And that legislative history really came back to destroy it. A key part of your argument was that it was so clearly passed out of fear and what's legally called animus. Yeah,
1: exactly right. It's not like Congress in 1996 did studies to figure out, you know, what would be bad or good policy. It's not like they looked at the tax implications or the Social Security implications or anything like that. And they say in the House report they're doing it based on moral disapproval of homosexuality. And uh, in Justice Kennedy's constitutional jurisprudence, that's a constitutional no-no. You can't pass a bill just because people are different.
9: Yeah. Correct. Since this year's big case, Obergefell v. Hodges, and I'm never sure that I pronounced that correctly, since that came down, which ended marriage discrimination, at least legal marriage discrimination, I sometimes think that Windsor's gotten a little forgotten. And I also don't think that... This case would have happened if Windsor hadn't gone the way that you took it. What do you think the legacy of Windsor should be, or how should history remember Windsor?
1: We live in an age today with Instagram and Twitter and everything. People focus on whatever the newest thing is. So the most recent case is the Obergefell case, and it surely was very important in establishing the equal protection of gays under the Constitution. What was amazing is Windsor got the decision in June 2013 And what happened over the next two years was truly extraordinary. There has never been a tidal wave of court cases like this, again, ever in U.S. history, where case after case after case, uh, judges in states like Utah and Oklahoma and Virginia all agreeing that what Windsor meant is that gay people have to be treated equally under the law and equally in marriage. What's
9: fascinating about that is that the actual case did not strike down Doma Entirely,
1: it just addressed the federal issue of DOMA. Am I reading that correctly? Yeah, there was an, there's another provision of DOMA that basically says if a gay person gets married in one state, you don't have to recognize the marriage in another state. Essentially, was the same issue as the right to marry nationwide. We didn't challenge it strategically, I mean, intentionally in A.D. Windsor's case, because we didn't think the court was ready to go to marriage 50 states nationwide. So what Windsor basically says, it's more than just striking down the section of DOMA. It basically says that gay people have equal dignity. Justice Kennedy uses the word dignity 11 times in 23 pages in the Windsor. He says over and over and over again, that gay people have dignity just like everyone else, and that that dignity needs to be respected under the law. And that's the principle that led to Obergefell, which basically says the exact same thing. In fact, in Obergefell, he actually uses the phrase equal dignity. Which, of course, a lot of people
9: on the right are just horrified by because they think that that's not a strict reading
1: of the Constitution. Well, you know, obviously, I disagree with that. I mean, if you look at major Supreme Court cases, Brown is the perfect example of this. The court in Brown does not go into detail about the policy reasons or the rationales or the constitutional technicalities for why separate but equal was unconstitutional. The court basically assumes in Brown that African-Americans are equal to white people. And that because they're equal to white people, they can't have separate facilities. And we just start there. And Windsor's the same thing. Like, I, you know, I get what Justice Kennedy was doing. It makes a lot of sense. You don't have to write 15 pages in today's world to explain that gay people are the same as everyone else. Everyone accepts that. And once you accept that, then the constitutional analysis is easy, simple. Because once you assume one group of people is equal... And they have to be treated equally under the law. That's what our Constitution says.
9: I want to come back to the nuts and bolts of the case in just a minute. But I am fascinated by how you got to this case, because you're a partner at Paul Weiss, a very noted law firm, and you are not an attorney with Lambda or ACLU or gay and lesbian advocates and defenders. It's unusual that a private attorney takes the helm on a case like this. You got also some pushback for that.
1: Yeah. I mean, first of all, I've been doing this work for many years. So I had done the New York marriage case with the ACLU and Lambda, who had the companion case, back in 2004 and 2006. So I I had a record on this, working with those groups. But the real reason it happened, frankly, is because Edie went to the groups first and they turned her down. Because they turned her down and because, to use her words, she felt indignant about the injustice that DOMA caused, she went around looking for a lawyer and she happened to have a friend who was a friend of mine, and that's how the connection was made. And, and I didn't have any qualms. I thought it was really, from the first, second, I thought it was the perfect case. What was the pushback from some of the other organizations originally? I wasn't a party to the conversations that Edie had, obviously. She was told something like it wasn't the right time for the movement or something like that. You know, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, because Mary Bonato at GLAAD had already started a case in Boston at this point in time. I suspect, because this I did hear later, that it had to do with a concern that Americans wouldn't get Edie's story because they would see her as kind of this privileged white lady who had a lot of money and had to pay a lot of money in estate taxes. It's not an issue that concerned me at all. I mean, I thought about it. I listened to what people had to say, but it wasn't an issue for me at all. I think, first of all, Edie's not that privileged. The estate tax was really because they bought an apartment in Manhattan in 1980, and like anyone who bought an apartment in Manhattan in 1980, it made a lot of money in terms of value, and that's why the estate tax was so high, number one. Number two, I think every American gets in their gut what it means to have to pay a tax that's unjust, a tax for being gay. That's part of our culture. We don't like to pay taxes anyway. Call me crazy, but I think our country was started based on a fight <laughs> about an unfair tax. I mean, I've been teaching you know, colonial history to my nine-year-old son, so I'm pretty sure I'm right about that. And the amount here was the, actually the perfect amount because it was a huge damage. It wasn't like just paying you know, a $50 filing fee for bankruptcy court or you know, a small additional amount of money. Not that that's not important, it is, but this was really a hit to the it's gut. It's real money. It's real money. And I think Americans all got that. And I know the justices got that.
9: You made a comment in the book that conservatives can agree that unfair taxes are wrong. Right, <laughs> you know?
1: and the we and, and added bonuses, I forgot this, the Republicans don't even like the estate tax. Yeah. This was an estate tax and they think there should be no estate tax. So I was like, that's not bad
9: either. I remember when I first learned about the case, I had the same thought process in my head. And I thought, oh boy, this is a attractive white woman wearing pearls who has an estate tax issue and really only people with money have estate tax issues. And, and I thought, gee, you know, is this really going to fly? And then the next thought
1: that came to me immediately was, yeah, taxes, the great unifier. Exactly. And then there's the story. I mean, who? look, there's one thing I know about life, which is no one knows what life has in store for you, right? No one knows that, you God forbid, you could wake up in two days and get a diagnosis of MS the way Thea did. The one thing, however, I think we all know is if, if that happens to us, we would really like to have a spouse like Edie Windsor at our side. Talk about a marriage and sickness and in health till death did they part. I mean, this was a marriage, and I knew that Americans would get that.
3: Don't go away. We'll be right back with more from Robbie Kaplan after this quick break. Welcome back. I'm David Hunt, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. Now back to Abby's conversation with attorney Roberta Kaplan.
9: This is Abby Dees, and I'm talking with Roberta Kaplan, attorney and author of the book Then Comes Marriage, about her fight against DOMA. One of the themes in the book and one of the themes in the case, sort of your rallying cry, was it's all about Edie. Could you talk a little bit about what that means?
1: Yeah. So I I had a post-it, especially when we got to the Supreme Court, I had a post-it on my computer that said, borrowing from, I think it was George Stephanopoulos in the first Clinton campaign, said, it's all about Edie, stupid. You know, I think there were two reasons I had it up there. One was conscious and one was unconscious. The conscious reason was we thought from day one that if we could persuade Americans, if we could persuade judges, and ultimately if we got there, if we could persuade the justices of the Supreme Court, that the marriage that Edie and Thea had was the same as anyone else's marriage, not that different than the marriage that Justice Ginsburg, for example, had. She lost her husband and she would understand. If we could persuade them of that, we would win the case. And that was the way to win the case. We didn't want it anymore to be an abstract fight between the right and the left, between pundits on MSNBC and Fox News. We wanted it to be about real people in their lives. That's what All About E.D. was. If you look at our Supreme Court brief on the merits, it's called a red brief. The first eight pages are E.D. and Thea's love story. There's not a lot of Supreme Court briefs that look like that, but again, we did it for a reason. So that's that. The second reason, which I don't think I realized until after the case, is I think I was trying to tell myself that even though I was a married lesbian who was being adversely impacted by DOMA, that my job as a lawyer, as is my job as a lawyer for any client, is to only think about Edie, and to put my own situation and my own Michigas behind and aside and to only focus on ED. And so I think I had it up there kind of to remind myself of that too. And we really did. We made every single decision on the case based on one criteria and one criteria only, which is: will doing X or doing Y help Edie get her money back? And if that's how you make decisions in a case, it makes most of your decisions very easy. And that's tricky because the whole world is watching, and we all know that our marriages are riding on this. Yeah, believe me, I, I get that. I mean, there were times, you know, when I felt like you know I had seven tons riding on my shoulders. But the case was all about Edie. Part of that is that's how you win cases. That's what our legal system's about. You're not supposed to be debating abstract principles in courts for the most part. A lot of judges don't like that. They have busy schedules and they want cases about a real, what's called a case or controversy, a real issue. I remember when I argued in the Second Circuit, I said to the judge, I opened by saying, this case is about a widow who wants her money back. Simple as that. And it does seem
9: to me just reading I mean hindsight's 2020, 20, but looking at Kennedy's opinion in the end, I
1: think he saw that. Oh, there's no question he did. I mean, he does a beautiful rendition of the facts of Edie and Thea's relationship in the opinion. Uh, there's no question that he did.: Do you think that he
9: gets tired? of being kind of the target. We all knew how the court was going to go, except for Kennedy. And he wrote the opinion in Lawrence. He wrote the opinion in Windsor. Then he wrote the
1: four. What was the four? Okay, Obergefell. Windsor and Obergefell. So he's written all... Look, I mean, he is unique on the Supreme Court at this point in American history because no justice has so dominated an area... The way that he has dominated gay rights. He's written all four major gay rights decisions by the Supreme Court. And everybody's watching him for these cases. And everyone's watching him. I don't know him personally, so I can't tell you what goes on in his head, obviously. But I suspect he's pretty proud of it. Yeah, I, I think he's very proud of his legacy in that.
9: I have a personal story about Kennedy. When I was in law school many years ago, Kennedy came to speak. I wasn't a fan of Kennedy's. These cases hadn't come down yet. He was a Reagan appointee, I believe. Yes. And he does have a conservative track record on the court in many respects. I went, I thought, well, it's a Supreme Court justice. What are you going to do? Go listen to the guy talk. And I came out of that with such a greater respect for the potential of the Constitution, the ideals of the Constitution. He impressed me tremendously tremendously. And especially because I didn't really agree with him in a lot of these ways, but in just sort of standing up for these ideals,
1: what you want the Supreme Court to be about. Thanks for telling me that story because I know it's a great story. And it doesn't surprise me. I mean, I, I, again, I don't know him. I understand he's a religious Catholic. I actually think that his conception of dignity that comes out so much in these opinions is based on his view, a view that I share, that God created everyone in the image of God, every single human being. And that means that every single human being has dignity and that that dignity needs to be respected. Yeah, I think one of the mistakes that our movement made is to cede religious arguments to the other side and to make it look like anyone who was religious was anti-gay. That's not true. A lot of people's religions teach them that gay people their equal dignity as human beings needs to be respected.
9: And there were a lot of friend of the court briefs in Windsor from religious
1: people and religious institutions, to your point exactly. Yeah, that was one of my major obsessions in the case. I really wanted a religious brief... Not only from all the gay religious groups, which we've always had, I want it from mainstream religious groups. So I wanted not the gay Catholics, I wanted the Catholics. I wanted not the gay Jews, I wanted the Jews. And we really got that. So you got a just avalanche of these briefs. Do you think that those make a difference? Yes, no question. It depends. Not all of them. There were 90 that were filed in the Windsor case, 45 on each side. The ones on the other side, the 45 on the other side, mostly all made the same kind of I think, crazy religious argument that somehow because my religion doesn't approve of gay people that you're infringing upon my rights as a religious person or my beliefs to not have Edie have to pay a $350,000 state tax. It made no sense. And most of those briefs said that. And some of them used language that you saw again in Obergefell that was really, frankly, batty. There's a comparison that they like to make that people on our side are somehow the same as pro-slavery people in the South. To this day, I have not... How do you figure that? Yeah, I really (laughs) don't understand that analogy, but it's one of their favorite arguments. So their briefs on their side, I really, frankly, don't think had much of an impact because they were pretty crazy most yeah. of them and that was true in the perry case the property case, case was and the same else. yeah i mean the first yeah. brief that we got on the other side was from the westboro baptist church and, <laughs> and we were like to quote the character in my son's favorite movie beauty and the beast we were like be my guest you want to file an amicus brief on the other side feel free let's see your color colors fly on our side i immediately when they took windsor asked mary bonato to come in and, and run that and she did a great job of kind of corralling the various groups and there were I think three briefs that were the most important, or maybe four. The first was the religious brief we've already talked about. The second, this was very important, was briefs about the military. After Don't Ask, Don't Tell had been repealed, in large part as a result of a good friend of mine, Jay Johnson, who was then the General Counsel of the Pentagon and is now Secretary of Homeland Security, they had a real problem in the military because there were a lot of openly gay soldiers who, not surprisingly, were married because people going in the military tend to be people who want to get married. Because of DOMA, however, they were not married for purposes of federal law. And so it had already happened that from time to time, one of those soldiers got seriously injured or even killed, and the military leadership was not able to notify their spouse that that had happened. And in military culture, that is a big deal. You know, how you tell someone or their family that they've been injured or died is a big deal, and it was driving the Pentagon crazy, literally crazy, that it was such an indignity to these soldiers and to their honor. So that brief was very important. We had a brief from the military. Frankly, a brief from business was very important. We had 271 businesses in Windsor. I think by the time it got to Obergefell, it was like 400-something. Even in Windsor, we had companies begging to be put on while we were taking the brief to the printer. I mean, it was already too late. You have to play to your audience. So it was important for the justices to see that this is a mainstream issue for many Americans. And those issues rise above politics. Exactly. You got a
9: lot of backseat drivers. As you were preparing this case, and one of the suggestions that you got was to degay the case, and you wisely said to hell with that or something more polite than that, or maybe not. <laughs>
1: I don't. Know. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna repeat on, on the air what I said in response. To that. <laughs> Tell me about that. Look, in any big case like this, there are a lot of people who have opinions. That's to be expected. And this was obviously a high-profile issue. Everyone knew that it was going to be hugely important for the community. So there were a lot of people focused on it, and that was to be expected. Um, and we got a lot of advice, and we would listen to all of it. We would accept some. We would reject some. But one piece of advice that we got that really stuck out was this idea that the way to win the case was to degay it, to rely instead on some earlier Supreme Court cases, one of which involves hippies. Uh, And one of which involved mentally disabled people and that that we should really rely on those precedents rather than talk so much about Edie being gay. And my view at the time was that, frankly, I don't think today's Supreme Court would necessarily decide the hippie case the same way today. I don't know about the mentally disabled people, but certainly the hippie case. And I didn't really want to compare gay people to people who are mentally disabled. I wasn't crazy about that analogy. And I thought, you know, as I said earlier, that the way to win the case is to persuade the court that we are like everyone else. We have the same kind of marriages, the same kind of relationships, the same kind of families as anyone else. And so not only did we not want to de-gay the case, we wanted to, like, re-gay the case. I mean, you know, a lot of our practice sessions, you know, the answers I gave, you know, every other word out of my mouth was gay, 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 gay. (laughs) And if you listen to the argument, I certainly said it quite a bit.
9: This is Abby Dees, and I'm talking with Roberta Kaplan, attorney and author of the book Then Comes Marriage, about her fight against DOMA. Do you think that this case provides precedent for issues beyond discrimination against people because they're gay? Oh, uh,
1: Windsor and Obergefell together mean that no government, state, local, or federal, can discriminate against any gay person because they're gay. There's no question that that's what it means. Um, So there's very little left in terms of government laws that discriminate against gay people. One of the last ones I'm now challenging in Mississippi is a law that prevents gay couples from adopting. I am extremely confident that we will win that case because there's just no question that that's what Windsor and Obergefell mean.
9: Are there any arguments on the other side that have come along that have given you actually something to bite your teeth into? As a lawyer, I'm glad that the other side can't come up with good arguments to fight our equality. But sometimes you like a challenge. And it just doesn't seem... I haven't yeah. seen those and, arguments Well, it's come interesting. Along so yet. the
1: Mississippi adoption case is very interesting. So we filed our case, we asked for an injunction. Two of our couples in Mississippi have kids. One have a a 12-year-old boy, I think, and one has an eight-year-old girl. And the two mothers have raised these kids since birth, but only one is the legal parent. And that's obviously not acceptable. In fact, one of the women's in the National Guard and she could be called off to duty any day. She's the legal parent and it's not acceptable that she has to worry that if something happens to her, her spouse, her now married wife, is not the legal parent. So, We filed the case. We asked for an injunction. It's very interesting what the state of Mississippi did in response. It really didn't make any arguments on the merits at all. Almost all the arguments that it makes in the case are kind of procedural arguments. They basically say, we don't have standing. You should have applied to adopt. No one knows how anyone would interpret the statute today. You should file in state court, yada, yada. You should apply an abstention doctrine, yada, 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 yada. But it's shocking the degree to which, even in the state of Mississippi, they don't really want to fight this on the merits anymore. And where is that case in in its journey? So we're almost fully briefed, and we have an argument in Jackson, Mississippi, on November 6th. What's next after this? Look, as I said, I think the governments can't discriminate anymore. I think that issue is now resolved. But the big open question out there is, can private employers, in terms of accommodations, discriminate against gay people? I think the answer to that question is both legal and non-legal. The non-legal answer to it is that American businesses have no interest in doing so. I mean, it's terrible business for them. They don't want to have a store manager at some store somewhere, some Walmart or wherever be able to make decisions about whether they're going to sell something to a family because they're gay or not. That's like a public relations nightmare for business. So you're seeing a lot of the strongest opposition to these bills, frankly, are coming from business. And I think that's the reason. But you're still going to have these one-offs. You're going to have these Kim Davises (laughs) who want their, what did Warhol say, two minutes of fame, 20 minutes? Fifteen. Fifteen. Today, in today's world, it's probably longer with social media. You're going to see people like that. Again, I don't think we really have any tolerance for that. We're not going to go back to a world of Jim Crow for gay people. That's un-American at this point. But, you know, people like the attention. So Kim Davis is out there. In a way, I think she's been a huge gift to our movement. I'm delighted that Kim Davis did this. First of all, her legal arguments are ridiculous because she's a public servant and she can't pick and choose what parts of the Constitution she's going to follow. Two... When you look at the people supporting her, the rallies and stuff, and you see people with swastikas and white robes, it really conveys how hateful our opposition is. And I think that's a good thing. I think Americans have realized that. And then on top of that, here's the icing on the cake: she lies about a meeting with the Pope. Frankly, it doesn't get better than that. And there must be some special category of sin. It's nice uh, when you see them coming, and you can. And they're yeah, really for loud. lying about the Pope. I mean, when that happened, I, you know, I was pretty happy about it. When you sat down to write your book,
9: then comes marriage. As you look back over all this, was there anything that sort of themes
1: or understanding of what happened now that you didn't see at the time? Two things are important. One, I think I had forgotten or not realized how much the world changed even within the four years, really, that we litigated the case. We started when we first met Edie in 2009. We got the decision in 2013. And even within those four years, I think in large part because of Edie, the world changed dramatically. We looked back at some of the older emails in the case. You know, we were seeing the world through a different lens. Even to me, I'm, you know, queen lesbian at this point. (laughs) But even to me, that was surprising. And then if you go back even farther in history to the years when I was in college or law school, even I, again, am surprised. I've forgotten. It's a good thing I've forgotten. You you know, it's, it's healthy and human and mentally healthy to forget. But I had forgotten how bad the world was. You know, I'd forgotten how scared I was to come out, how right I was to be scared to come out, what the world was like during the AIDS crisis when gay men were literally dying in droves and no one cared. We changed the world. I mean, this is a community that changed the world, and that's an incredible thing.
9: My partner and I drank a toast to you and Edie last night. We were celebrating our seventh wedding anniversary. Thank you. And the busboy had written on the reservation that it was our anniversary, and the busboy just came up, and he was clearing our dishes. He, He whispered to us, happy anniversary. And... It was such a wonderfully ordinary event, and I am thinking back to the first time we celebrated our, our first anniversary. We had a completely different experience in an L.A. restaurant, and we just sort of stopped, and I thought about that I was going to be seeing you
1: today and thought, that's what this is about. That's what you fought for. That's what Edie fought for. That's exactly right. No, my best version of that is a couple months after the decision, my son, who was then seven, is obsessed with movies, and so we decided we were going to have a family movie night, and I said, I put my foot down, and I said, I cannot watch another Disney cartoon. I said, we're going to pick the movie, and you know, hopefully you'll like it. And so we picked My Fair Lady. He watched the whole movie, and afterwards he said, I have two questions. And we said, okay. And he said, first of all, he said, I don't understand why Eliza went back to Henry Higgins. <laughs> he's like, he treated her so badly. Like, why would you do that? My wife and I could not have been prouder. We clearly are doing at least something right with our son. And then he's like, and the second question is, he said, I guess this is an old-fashioned movie. And we said, yeah, Jacob, it's old-fashioned. He said, yeah. He said, I guess this was made before men could marry men. (laughs) And exactly. We had the same. It hit us that in my son's view of the world, something is old-fashioned if it happened before men could marry men. I mean, that pretty much says it all. What a great marker. How is Edie doing? She's great. We should all do and look. The way Edie
9: does at the age of 86. She's pretty rocking. I hate to be sexist, but I did notice that she is quite an attractive family. She
1: still looks fabulous. She goes out a lot. We kind of have a little bit of conflict because I think she often doesn't rest as much as she should. (laughs) We spent a week together in P-Town this summer and had a great time. And she's really, at this point, a part of my family.
9: Oh, that's wonderful. And you're working
1: on this case in Mississippi. What's next for you? I don't know. I have no idea what lies ahead for me. Well, I, I want to keep doing what I'm doing. I love to be a lawyer, but other than that, I don't know. I wish you luck in whatever
9: comes down the pike. I'm looking forward to seeing it. Robbie Kaplan, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. And congratulations again on your anniversary. Thank you. I've been talking with Roberta Kaplan, the lead attorney for the plaintiff Edie Windsor in U.S. v. Windsor, also the author of the book, Then Comes Marriage. You can find out more about the book and about what Roberta Kaplan's doing at her website, www.robbiekaplan.com.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much.
3: Edie Windsor died September twelfth, 2017. Okay, that's it for tonight. I'm David Hunt. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride. Please follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. And if you're interested in volunteering with IMRU in any capacity, Email public at prideonscreen.com. And a reminder, we're a global podcast as well as a show broadcast by KPFK Los Angeles, and you can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org. Also, catch us on iTunes, Spotify, Breaker, Anchor.fm, CastBox, and PocketCasts. I'm David Hunt. You can find me at tellmedavid.com. So long, and thanks for listening. Thank <laughs> you.